Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald Deep Dives. I'm Dave Busey, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm going to be talking about House of X and Powers of Ten with Writer Supreme over at Comic Book Herald. He is, a on the intelligence scale, a dominion. It's John Galati. How's it going, John? It's going great, Dave. How are you doing? Yeah. I am doing well. I am super excited to talk House of X and Powers of Ten with you today. We are recording this uh, pretty directly in the aftermath of House, or what was it now, Powers of Ten Six, the final issue coming out. This is right before X-Men number one Mm -hmm. comes out this week. We're going to not really recap what happened so much as I think answer some big questions about House of X and Powers of Ten. So this is going to include some wild theories, some wild, you know, like ideas potentially. But also I think the big question, and on deep dives, like we want to be answering at least one big question at a time. The one we want to get into here is what makes a reinvention or a quote-unquote retcon in superhero comics successful? Because that's what we've seen in House of X and Powers of Ten as as big a moment as this has been in Marvel Comics. It's also changing our understanding of like not only current X-Men, but kind of the history of the franchise. There's a lot of questions I still have about, does this actually even work with everything that's come before, you know? And I, I think a lot of people would say, who cares? But then, you know, I'm obviously, Comic Book Herald, like, I like continuity. I think it's part of the challenge of doing superhero comics, and they're clearly making efforts to sort of make things line up. So this won't be specific to continuity alone, But that's, I think, kind of one of the biggest questions we want to get at. All right, John, let's get to the first question we wanted to ask before we do any of that. Um, Actually, let's do a little summary. John, I I did some summary on a Dawn of X, a road to Dawn of X yesterday. So I'll let you kick off. What what is your main takeaway from House of X and Powers of Ten that you feel like sort of sums it up for people? It's hard to do. Man, that sums it up. I think that House of X and Powers of Ten are really setting a new stage and changing the stakes for the X-Men. So mm-hmm. as a summation, like a real quick high level, you know, we've got Moira, who turns out to be a mutant and has gone through multiple timelines only to learn now that we can spoil it, that there's no winning for the X-Men. And right. it is now a fight up against the X-Men and kind of a technologically evolved human race and it seems like a whole nature versus industry thing that's going on in a lot of touch points. It's like man versus mutant versus machine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if man is in the middle or if man is a if machine is a part of man. Like that's a whole that's a whole thing. Or is man part of machine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a genuine question. Yeah. So that's a whole interesting thing. And I love the fact that we have been it's been revealed that mutant kind is not the ultimate evolution of mankind that Mm -hmm. maybe it's just this weird offshoot and that we think that the ultimate evolution is this phalanx hybrid i think it's also a nice way of marvel bringing the celestial level down onto the x-men or not um not celestial but what am i thinking Cosmic, sorry, the cosmic level down. Okay, you know oh, the like X Men. Celestials are speci- that's yes. a specific choice. Sorry, well, there <laughs> technically there's a half a celestial in the X Men now, but yeah. uh, no, the they're bringing the cosmic level back into the X Men, which is you know reminds me of the Claremont era, which is nice. Yeah, so there's a there's a big and one thing we're going to get into, I think, is the future timeline. So you're alluding to. So I will 
first off, obviously, we're past the point of this being worthwhile, but this will be a spoiler-laden discussion of House of X and Powers of Ten, if you couldn't gather from the deep dive. If you're not worried about that and you are fairly unfamiliar, like John said, we're playing here with an X-Men story where the X-Men are breaking all the rules, as they say. They are forming an island nation of, unlike Genosha, unlike Utopia, unlike the other island nations, forget those, (laughs) this is a new one. And it's heroes and villains, you know, those familiar archetypes all together, right? It's all of mutant kind as one. And they are all attempting to fulfill a future for mutant kind, effectively. And this is all inspired by Moira, as you mentioned, has been retconned to be a mutant who reincarnates and relives lives. She is now in her 10th life. She has all the knowledge of everything that came before. She knows what works, what doesn't work. And House of X, the island nation of Krakoa, is her attempt to, to find a new path for mutant kind, kind of her last shot, as far as she knows, to actually get it right. So that's where we are in House of X and Powers of Ten. It's been a stunning 12-week achievement. Um, you know, actually, let me ask you just on a, a kind of a comic industry level, did the weekly release work for you, or do you kind of wish it had been spread out more? Because I heard some people talking about this. I really wish that it had been spread out. It was too much. Interesting. Okay. I found like I found by halfway through, so maybe Powers of X number three or House of X number four, I found myself thinking, I don't know how they're going to keep any of this in continuity. Mm. Like I felt differently by the end. But yeah. by the midway point, I stopped caring about the book in a way because I'm just like, this is... No one's going to, nobody's going to pick up and run with this crazy business about black holes. No one's going to be able to make sense of this librarian. Huh. You know, we've probably, we've probably imbued Moira with too much power at this point that like suddenly she's just going to offset the whole thing. And we've weirdly devalued Apocalypse. And I'm like, I don't, you know, week after week after week, hit after hit after hit. I was just like, this is too much. You're, I I need time to, to collate what's happening. So like the like the process time and the ability to like let it sort of wash over you, yeah. I think actually would have been of value. That's really interesting to me. I heard um so there's a podcast I really like called Wait What. I don't know if you're familiar. It's a uh, Graham McMillan and, and Jeff Lester, and they both really quite didn't. The one I listened to was like midway through the series. I think it came out like right after House of X number four, which was probably like the nadir of like backlash. Right? It's been like a lot of praise. House of X number four was probably the one where people were backlashing probably the most and uh and they weren't really doing it in the same way but the the duo there was basically saying like it's exhausting yeah was the phrase they used like week after week after week of this is exhausting which i found initially i bristled at because i don't agree i actually loved it i actually loved it weekly but i totally hear where you're coming from now and where they were coming from it's a lot to take in and like i i had the opposite reaction where i just got obsessed (laughs) like i basically became I, I think this book turned me into a YouTuber, John. Okay. Like, I think it. <laughs> I don't know what you were before, like, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, I, you know, I started making these videos on the CBH channel, like responded to theories and elements. Like I got really into it and I loved having a, I loved having a new entry every week because obviously I read a lot of comics and this is like, it's the most excited I've been about X-Men by probably my, probably my favorite franchise in comics history, but, like, one I've never actually collected until now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't get into comics collecting until the 2010s. So, for me, this is, like, the moment when I was like, oh, I can I can get into X-Men the way I kind of always wanted to. Like, watching the 90s X-Men animated series, you know? Right. So, it had that thrill for me. But I find that 
very, very interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of people who, catching up on Marvel Unlimited or reading via trade, actually have, going at their own pace effectively, maybe have a better experience even than I think like yourself, who who likes the comic, from my understanding. Oh, yeah. Right? By the end of it. By the end of but it, But yeah. probably going through the process had had more mixed feelings about it. I don't know. Like, so as much as I have mixed feelings about it, you bring up an interesting point that it turned me back into a collector of X-Men. Like, yeah. there are very few books that I really collect that I'm like, okay, I really need to get to the to comic book store on day one to go get this thing. Yeah. There's very few. And House of X, even with my misgivings, turned me back into that. And on top right. of which, it was super exciting to see the the fan base, you know, swirling with ideas and concepts and going wild with it. I just have the problem that when I read a book, I tend to try and forecast forward like, OK, where is this going? Where are we going to go with sure. this? Which I need to stop doing with Hickman. Like I've read so many <laughs> Jonathan Hickman books. I should have learned that way back on the nightly news. I should have been like, well, we're not we can't predict this yeah. man. So, yeah, for me, it was a little exhausting, but I found it so that's probably why it was so rewarding for me at the end when Moira drops the bomb of we always lose. That let yeah. off some of the pressure for me to try to figure out what all these timelines were doing and where they were going to go and how we were mm. going to reconcile them. It gave a whole different change for me. Like, no, this is just sort of a, almost a tone poem at times where we're just yeah. pushing a feel on top of you as opposed to pieces in the story that you necessarily need to keep track of. Though mm -hmm. I, I still maintain mm -hmm. that the speed of it really screwed up, or I shouldn't say screwed up, but it it reduced the, the enjoyment that I got out of the humor from Nimrod and from Mr. Sinister because they're used— Because you're flying through them yeah, so quickly. They're just used kinda. as beats as opposed to connecting strings. That's that is really interesting to me. Yeah, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. I do wonder, too, not to get into like the sales semantics of it, but I wonder— you let the hype build mm -hmm. on so the idea they had on wait what what the pod was like you drop the first three weekly and then you go bi-weekly or monthly sure after that i think probably bi-weekly would have been better i think that's actually a pretty clever solve and i do have to wonder because the hype for this builds as it goes yeah. right it's it's a little bit like with the mortal hulk we were talking about where it's like as word spreads it's going to engender enthusiasm right mm -hmm. i think that could have been a potentially exciting thing. I don't know. In, in retrospect, like the idea of needing to wait an extra week for any of these sounds terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> I would have hated that, but I could see that potentially having been better. So that, that kind of brings us to the first big question we wanted to ask, which, all right, it's a big reinvention of X-Men. It's the return of Jonathan Hickman to the Marvel universe. He's my favorite Marvel creator of the 2010s where you and I are working on a, a best of the decade list. And obviously like I put his Marvel verse literally at the top of all comics on my list. Like, I, I'm that big of a fan. Him coming back to this was a big event. Mm -hmm. Who's the book for? Clearly, somebody like myself, already a fan. Yeah. Okay, it's kind of for me. But who is like, this is an X-Men reinvention. So who is this for and who is it not for, I guess? So speaking just about House of X and Powers of Ten and not talking about what yep. comes after, I think the these 12 issues are for relapsed fans who wanted to be excited again. I don't yeah. think it works at all for new readers. I think that this is mm. just an on... Well, I was going to say an onslaught, but that's a different thing in the X-Men world. 
We might we might need to talk about that. We might. We might. Because <laughs> that's a theory too, yeah. You know, I thought it was just it would be overwhelming for new readers. And I think that the the weekly comic drop would just be too big of an ask. Mm -hmm. And I really don't think that it's for old school, you know, tried and true, been through it all fans either, because it does too much damage to reset stuff, which I think is going mm -hmm. to be necessary later on. But I think that asking old, you know, old school fans to accept this much change in 12 yeah. issues yeah. And what, how many weeks was it? Was it 12 weeks? Yeah, it was 12, 12. weeks. Um, it feels faster somehow. But asking them to, you know, to accept that in three months is crazy. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, I a lot of people were asking me on Comic Book Herald the first probably two weeks, especially, like, is this an OK place to start reading no. comics? <laughs> no. And I know. I know. And. I answered it. A lot of people are like, "Yes, it's clearly designed as a starting point. Um, this is this is a new entry point, right? Like it's a reinvention. You can kind of throw out continuity. You don't need to worry about old stuff. So Hard that, disagree. Therefore, Hard disagree. Yeah. So therefore, it's an okay starting point. I, I I'm a little more open to that idea than you are because because of the fact that it's like a lot of the problems when people come. Where do I start? Are well, you can start with the 2019 number one, but really you need to read that 2015 number one to get the backstory. And then actually, if you're going to read that, there's this really good story from 1986, yeah. you know, and it's just that endless going back. And with this, it did feel like maybe you don't need that. But actually, but actually what I said in the, the article about where to start is there's two things that are huge, hugely additive to jumping into House of X and Powers of Ten. The first is an understanding of Jonathan Hickman's writing style. Mm -hmm. This is a creator with a specific tone and approach to comics that I love, but if this is your first comic or your first X-Men comic in a while, and you haven't read his previous Marvel work, you haven't read his indie work, East to West, Manhattan Projects, etc., that might be a cold shower. You know, That might be a tough, a tough on-ramp. So I thought a road to for me is like, read the Hickman Marvelverse, some of it, see if you like it. The second thing is... This book plays with X-Men history like like it's the most common common knowledge in the world, mm -hmm. you know? And it simultaneously takes the time to explain things that need to be explained with those incredible data pages. Oh yeah. And throws things at you like, "Hey, here's Sage, we're not going to talk about her deal <laughs> at all. She's just here." You know? There's a lot of that. And I do wonder like you said for lapsed readers, especially, maybe like you said, maybe uh uh X-Men number 4 the first non-Claremont issue was a bridge too far for them in 1991. And they were like, I'm out. I'm not reading X-Men again. And they come back now because <laughs> all the hype. And mm -hmm. and they're like, wait, who, what, uh, why does, why does uh, Doug Ramsey's back? And he's got a warlock arm. And like, you know, like there's just a lot of character stuff and event stuff that has happened since then or just in, throughout history that like, it, it, I don't know. There's a lot to it. There's just a ton to X-Men. And it's always it's always going to be a burdensome franchise. So I actually think it's a better starting point than you do, um, just based on what you just said. But I, I also am fully willing to concede, like, yeah, it might be a little confusing. <laughs> I don't know that there's a perfect on-ramp without a hard reboot at this point in time, you know? My headcanon for how this works out is mm -hmm. this book makes a great prequel that you go back to read after you've read the new X-Men, the new Excalibur, Ooh. you know, you read the first books of those, yeah. you get a feel for stuff because that's going to slow down. That's going to give you yeah. time to get into it. 
And then you can go back that this becomes the new canon that you go back to reference as opposed to digging out a Claremont issue from 86 or, you know, a John Byrne issue or whatever. Right, right. So two years from now when we're on X-Men number 16. Yeah. People are like, oh, go back and read House of X and Powers of 10 as the prequel to this. And um, that's that's Anakin there with the cerebral helmet on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and frankly, I think that the the better on ramp for fans, for fans who have never read the X-Men before, my recommendation for an on ramp is the Grand Design series from Ed Pisker. That, yeah. And frankly, it fits so well as like a, uh, a companion to Jonathan Hickman, because both yeah. of them have this interesting sense of time. Pisker's grand design is all him trying to fit all of the X-Men chronology in all of its disagreements into one slim trim line, you know, storyline. And to do that, he sort of treats it more like an ordinal graph where he reorganizes things based around a theme or an idea or a concept rather than pure timeline. And it works so well for me. And I found myself, as I was reading House of X and Powers of Ten, really going back and thinking about Grand Design and how he laid that out. Yeah, I, I think the um, the first two issues, which are oversized, especially of the Silver Age, which is kind of a period of X-Men time that gets frequently lost because it's not, it's just frankly not as good no. as the once Claremont hits in 70, 75, 76. Um, those are great. Those synergize and bring things together in a way that I was like, Oh, I think I've read a lot of this, but actually this like brings it all together in a way that is really easy to understand. Um, so yeah, I think that's a solid wreck. I think I don't want to make this conversation about House of X and Powers of Ten's impact on previous X-Men stories or continuity, other than to say it challenges them. It challenges them significantly because what it's doing is it's saying everything you've read before probably happened. It might have happened. We don't know that it definitely happened (laughs) yet. And also, everything that happened was with the characters having this, like, secret, especially Professor X, Magneto, and Myra, having this secret knowledge of how things were going to go. Yeah. So, like, you can go back and read, let's say, Professor X bringing Myra to the X-Mansion in Uncanny X-Men number 96 in the late 70s and, and be like, okay, she's showing up and he's pretending she's a housekeeper and they're sort of keeping it subtle with the X-Men, you know, what the relationship is. But also they're planning for Krakoa in five years, you know? Yeah. So it's like it adds this whole layer of does this work to all of X-Men, which I think is going to be very interesting. I'm curious to see what some of the solves are and if it breaks. Like, is it too heavy? And at that point, is it just a retcon that said... Listen, we can handle some of this continuity, but you had the stories. We have a new one now. Let's just move forward. Yeah. And so a lot of fans are going to be fine with that, and some of us are going to be like, mm, "I'd rather you. I'd rather you fit it into the puzzle." But you know, whatever. This is good. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. I mean, it's it's okay if they have to pull the parachute and say that this is some sort of alternate timeline situation just to make it all work. I'm okay with that. That's, I mean, it's that's it's been all, done. Well, plenty. and that's the thing. Exactly, and that's the thing too with Myra. So let's go let's go to the next the next question then which is what is the most exciting part of this reinvention so looking at the question of all right we're we're reinventing the x-men for 2019 like you said probably the biggest target audience is lapsed x-men fans yeah because there is it's kind of like i was saying like 
it's probably my favorite franchise, yet simultaneously I was never collecting X-Men as an ongoing. Well, what does that say? That says X-Men's kind of been in the dark. And there are a lot of X-Men fans from the deck. And, like, this is not me saying nothing has been good. I know there have been good X-Men stories. You know what I mean? Like, I've read them all. Like, I <laughs> I read all the comics. Like, that's that's my thing, right? At Comic Book Herald. And, like, there have been really fun X-Men stories. I love all new Wolverine. I love X-Men yeah. Red. Like, there have been recent. Very, so, apparently, I just love Tom Taylor, which is true. <laughs> um, there have been really, recent really good X-Men stories. But, like, Hickman, in interviews, was saying, we're trying to bring them back to the biggest thing in comics, which is what they used to be, and they have lost some of that steam. Yeah. So I think whether you like where they've been or not, they've lost the luster. Oh, yeah. Like, the sales-wise, perspective-wise, culturally, some of this is movie-based, some of this is, like, cross-media, but it's comics as well. So they're trying to bring them back for people who used to think they were the biggest thing in the world and maybe now don't, and, and that is, I think, what is sparking so much of the enthusiasm. So the question is, What's the most exciting part of this reinvention? There's a lot to it. For you, John, what's the most exciting part? I think it's it's two. One is the part that I'm excited to see just from a business standpoint, and one is the part that I'm excited to see just personally. Uh, so the, the yeah. business standpoint is I have always thought, and I've actually mentioned it a couple times on our, on our site, that the X-Men work better almost as their own invisible universe within the Marvel Universe. Like I, I loved Claremont's uh, idea that he took the X Men as this symbol of um, you know racial diversity and LGBTQ and said, okay, here are these maligned groups within America and they exist in these shadow cultures that they sometimes you know you could pop ups with like jazz or fashion or whatnot, but for the most part, the dominant culture is almost com- completely unaware of what's happening to these people, and. That felt great for the X-Men because it, one, put them at danger because that means that they're outside of, you know, normal security. And two, it allowed the X-Men to do stuff without having to justify it against normal reality. You know, like um, when Kitty Pride suddenly becomes a ninja, that that would take a lot of explaining in the normal <laughs> dichotomy of things. But within the X-Men, you're like, OK, great, that's fine. Um, yeah. That's great. Or when they when they went up against the brood, like how would you explain that within Spider-Man timeline or Daredevil timeline? Like that's mm. that's insane. Uh, so I, I like that Krakoa is allowing that to happen again. And I'll be very yeah. interested to see how X-Men culture builds as a part of it, since Jonathan Hickman put that as one of his mission statements from Magneto that they were building their own cultures. Right. But personally, I am utterly fascinated by the implications for telepathy and Charles Xavier in this storyline. It mm. it yes. it confronts stuff from Marvel that is frankly uncomfortable when you think about it. Uh, yeah, I'll take just a second, Dave, if you don't mind, to like kind of lay out real quick my theory on this. So let me before you do so, and I, I very much want you to. I have two things to mention here. One, John has an amazing review of telepathy as a power <laughs> he's reviewing all the superpowers over on cbh it's an absurd undergoing <laughs> but if anyone can do it it's john he keeps tricking me into learning things while i'm editing these um and it's awesome we'll include that in the show notes so i want to call that out so you can get a little more there and then the second thing is uh, the little bit of background here on professor x that i find fascinating as you get into this is so many fans so many readers of this series are like professor x is acting like a supervillain. 
you know, I had I had a guy on Twitter who was like, Professor X is turning into Lex Luthor. This is weird. I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. So with that backdrop and with like a lot of people feeling like, I think he's turning into a bad guy. What are, what are the tele, you know the telepathy implications and and kind of these theories that you're excited about? So, first of all, like this is not the first time by a long shot that Xavier has done oh, some no. shady stuff. Uh, so telepathy works in the Marvel universe, never mind DC for the moment, and in two ways. The first way is the way that like gods do it, that it's reality manipulation, that they know what you're thinking or they plant thoughts in your head by changing the fabric of reality and space and time. It's a it's a very high level thing. Very few people have it. It's a handful of gods. I think that's how the celestials and eternals do it, uh, though I'm having a hard time double checking. And anyone who has the mind stone from the infinity gems, those are the okay. people. Yeah. For everyone else, it's contact through the astral plane. Now, the astral plane, very fast, is your your soul or your spirit. It exists in this alternate world that's crazy. If you've seen the new, uh, the new Doctor Strange movie, when he's over there in the non-Euclidean space, that's the astral plane. The astral plane, your astral plane self, has all of your memories, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, and you are connected in the real world to this through something called a thought stream. It's like an upload-download situation. So you're only getting snapshots of your astral self in your physical meat suit, you know? So when Professor Xavier goes to read someone's mind, he goes into the astral plane and is in contact with their souls. It's a really uncomfortable idea when you think about it, which means that when he is making copies in his new Cerebro, when we find out that he's doing mental backups of all the mutants, Mm -hmm. what exactly is he storing? Like, is he storing another soul? Is it astral stuff? Is he stealing something from that space? This isn't data on a hard drive. And in a way, in a very frightening way, it would be easier for gods to do this because they could just make another duplicate that's the exact same data. It's no interaction Mm -hmm. with who we think we are as a people. When Xavier is doing it, it's terrifying. And then there's an additional wrinkle. We have Apocalypse, who has telepathy, but he got that through celestial technology and being infected by two techno-organic viruses. Mm-hmm. His telepathy, we don't know if it works the same. We know in um, an issue of X-Force that I referenced in the article, it's annual number three. He, uh, Apocalypse fights Jean Grey, who's been deep-powered. Mm-hmm. So he goes up against her on the astral plane. But we never really get a good sense outside of a few blips like that how he's talking to his horsemen. It does not seem like astral stuff. Do they have souls? We have no idea. It's it's this whole idea of what is brewing in Krakoa that we have no idea about as we're paying attention to the phalanx. Yeah, there's so there's a lot to the resurrection process that I think is is still to come, certainly. And I think exactly like you're saying, the Professor X backups of of mutant kind, I there's sort of like there's there's a number of layers to it. I think you're getting deeper into <laughs> the implications and the ethical yeah. quandaries, right? And just this like, yeah, Professor X has a history of suspect decision making, and especially you, we really get in the last issue of the series, Powers of Ten, number six, mm-hmm. Myra openly questioning, "Have I broken the man by pushing him into this this decision to like move everyone to Krakoa?" Like. This is a man who, throughout all of her timelines and throughout our understanding of X-Men, had the dream of the peaceful 
cohabitation between mutants and humans, right? That was his dream, was harmony. And he gives this amazing speech, this Hickman-written speech, where he says that dream was a lie. Yeah. He, he recognizes that now, but Myra now is questioning, okay, a version of Charles who says the dream was a lie, is he a different Charles? Did I break him? What does that mean then when he's the one who, the sole power mm-hmm. capable at this point in time of backing up the entirety of mutant kind? You know, he's taking these three-week or three-hour-long excursions every week <laughs> to back up all of mutant kind. It says once a year, he makes a hard backup. And there's a, there's a whole thing about, like, this process cannot be interrupted. You know, it sounds very like Odin Sleepy, where it's like, there's going to be a story where Professor X is hard backuping, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. and, and don't turn off your computer because everything will blow up if you do, yeah. you know? Like, that's going to come. That he's switched out his mind on two occasions. Yeah. And what, you know, given what With we With legacy know, versions of himself. Yeah. So, right. like, what? Does he have a Shadow King version of himself? Does he have the version of himself that talked... Uh, there's an issue of X-Men where he convinces a woman to keep loving him after she wants to leave. Yeah. That I'll have to dig up. Like, is that the version he's got? What's going on? What did... He, right. Like, what did he erase from himself? I think is extremely interesting. Because here, here are the options that immediately come to mind. Shadow King, mm-hmm. Onslaught, Cassandra Nova. There's a lot of really yeah. fun X-Men stuff. And by fun, I mean terrifying and villainous <laughs> that you could play with here that could be the answer to those questions. Um, so, yeah, I agree that that specific element is super exciting. For me, the most exciting part of the reinvention is just everything to do with Myra McTaggart. Mm. Like, it's kind of an obvious pick, but it's also like... There's unlimited storytelling potential yeah. in having now 10 lifelines of Myra where it's just like instead of alternate realities, I guess like there is probably a, a worthwhile discussion about distinguishing, okay, these lifelines that she had. Mm-hmm. She dies and then they end, but then is that timeline still out there? Like, like there's big like... Okay, we're familiar with parallel universes. We're familiar with alternate realities. We're familiar with time travel, certainly, in the X-Men. What exactly is Myra's thing? And can people travel between lifelines? You know, we have a big moment in the ninth life of Myra, as we learned, is her apocalypse life, basically. Yeah. She she works with apocalypse, and they get 100 years in the future, and that's where we meet funny, sassy Nimrod and, <laughs> you know, the crew. Um, but there's a moment there where Zorn... Really, one of the horsemen of Apocalypse in this timeline releases a black hole, in his which is in his head. There's a ton of stuff with black holes going on here. Could they have traveled from a timeline through to another timeline? Like, what what are the implications of all this? That's the stuff that is most exciting to me. Also, just like if if Marvel tomorrow said, "Hey, we're going to do a 12 issue maxi series, um, the life of Myra X. It's going to be written by Marjorie Liu with art by Vanessa Del Rey." And uh, it's um, it's going to go into, you know, various aspects of her different timelines. Yep. I'm just throwing money at them. <laughs> I'm just like, I, I will do anything to get that book, you know? So for me, it's it's the one that I just love the sci-fi concept of it, which, let's credit here, the, uh, the first 15 lives of Harry August, semi-controversy here about, you know, uh, accusations of plagiarism, which I do not agree with in any way. But that book, very similar idea. Hickman has already, he's, Talked about it at length, but he said he's a fan of it. You should check out that book if you like the Meyer concept. It's a great yeah. read, great novel, and does the same thing about like replaying lifelines. So just as conceptually what it means for the X-Men, uh, just Myra being 
the driving force of everything happening here in a book called House of X, Mm -hmm. you know, in a book that we all expected to be a Professor X show. And in some ways it is. But then actually, really, it's not. No. Like, it's it's a show that he thinks he's running, but he's not running. And and I love that because it, it cha- again, it changes the dynamics of what the X-Men have historically been. It gives us somebody else and their perspective about how things should be for mutants that we haven't gotten before. So that's that's really cool to me. It's interesting when you brought up the timelines because in Powers of X number six, I think it was, the, yeah, it is, uh, the librarian mentions, like, if you die, this ends this timeline, which mm-hmm. is not how timelines usually work in the Marvel Universe. Right. But we've got uh, when way back when Apocalypse joins the gang, which I think is number four, House of X number four. Anyway, when Apocalypse comes. Uh, when comes he comes home. on board. That is five. That's five. Okay. In that issue, Apocalypse yeah, has four ends with with uh, the big uh, death of. Oh, right, right, right. So when Apocalypse comes on board and he meets Moira, He's got some weird notional remembrance of her in that scene. Yeah. And that raises the question, you know, since Apocalypse is part celestial and since he's got all this stuff going on, does he have a memory across timelines? Is there information that's going back and forth there? Now, I would take that to mean that was a Myra-infused memory. Okay. Like, like kind of like she did with Charles and, and Magneto, where she like was like, open up her mind. Okay. And was like, here's Might the right. life we had together. It was real type thing. Yeah. But you raise an interesting question because the the one real, probably my one of my favorite tricks is when they reveal that the 100 years in the future is actually Myra's ninth life, mm-hmm. as opposed to just 100 years in our future, which I think is brilliant. There's the moment where they take knowledge, they like insert it into Myra's sort of apocalyptic, you know, body at this point. Yeah. And, uh, and she is able to take that knowledge with her into her 10th life. Uh, so, like, Myra can transfer knowledge knowledge obtained in different timelines from one to the other. The question that we have not seen answered is, can anyone else? Yeah. Can anyone else traverse those planes? Uh, which I, I, I think is going to come. Like, again, there's just too much talk about singularities and black holes and connections <laughs> for that to not go anywhere. Yeah. You know? it's, it's There's so much set up. For all that stuff that I'm still like, the sci-fi of it is is hard to grasp, but it's also very clearly laying some groundwork about big picture stuff to come. I think because so, let's see. I kind of we have like so many questions that I kind of want to get into, and I'm trying to determine the best possible approach. I think let's talk about as a reinvention goes. The X-Men are, I think, in very good hands. I think in a very good place for the future. Again, like I've said, I've never quite been this excited about about the franchise like in the pages of comics. Is this actually better than previous Jonathan Hickman works? So as a creator, he's the big name here. He's the guy coming and driving this. He's a great idea guy. Mm-hmm. I think unquestionably, I think everyone would say, even people who don't like his work, great idea guy. Has he actually improved here, or are we just hungry for something to change with X-Men? That's, hmm. I think in some ways he's definitely improved. I think his, this feels like he's focusing on plotting. This feels like he's focusing almost on an exposition kind of situation, where he's Mm -hmm. trying to get a lot of information out quickly. And in that regards, I think it's great. 
I think that yeah. the the back and forth and the mystery of it works really well. And you know, he's he's always done great work with his with his graphs. Uh, I think that they are on you know on a high form in this book. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I I think that the the speed and the efficiency of it has robbed him of some stuff that he does really well in other books. Yeah. And it's hard to say how this... I feel like this is going to fit in really well with a master plan, but I think by itself, it's missing some elements that I would like. You know, uh, I think that the humor is a lot of fun, but it feels kind of hollow after it's done. Mm. Uh, I think that there are some weird teases that felt a little too much, like the... The Mr. Sinister gossip rag is an interesting yeah. thing that it's in another situation. That's a great way to tease information. But in mm-hmm. here where things are getting quickly brought up and resolved or brought up and be like, we're definitely going to do something with this. Mm-hmm. Some of the Mr. Sinister stuff, I'm like, I don't. Is there going to be another Summer's brother? Do I know who Wolverine is having a relationship with? Like, what do you think? Does hinting it matter? At? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, or you is know? yeah. Or is this just establishing like lies and nonsense from Mr. Sinister. Am I supposed to distrust this? I kind of like the idea of it being three huge plot points that are to come and then seven just outright lies. Yeah. (laughs) Because as sort of frustrating as that is, it's also very much in line with like a Mr. Sinister gossip rag. Like that's almost how that should function is like tons of misdirection, but also secretly there's some important stuff in there. Like I kind of wish that this book had had time in between issues to do one issue dedicated to a character. I yeah. think that that would have done a lot for me for feeling connected to some of these people and their choices. Like as exciting yeah. as as Moira is from a power and a narrative standpoint, she winds up feeling really inhuman very quickly. And mm-hmm. her reactions I don't understand. When, um, when Destiny kills her, well, Mystique kills her, in that timeline and she, when in the timeline where she's trying to cure her third life yeah i think that's right uh in her third life when she, she's trying to cure you know the gen, the mutant genetic situation and she views it as a curse she's like yeah. i have to relive lives <laughs> this is <Yeah>. bad <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> let's cure it yeah and you know she gets a big talking to from mystique and destiny like what are you doing you're killing your own people this yeah. is awful you're only hurting yourself and then they kill her to send her back. Yeah. She just starts the new life like, all right, I'm pro-mutants. It would have been interesting to have at least a page or two where she had some soul searching and some hand wringing. And when she goes over in another life to, I think it's the seventh life, uh, when she goes over to kill the Trask family, she just becomes a murderer. Like, she's just a straight up assassin. She's and, a trained assassin at that point, yeah. And I'm not against her being able to do that, but I would have liked a little bit of walking too of like, okay, how do you prepare for the fact that you're just going to murder people now? Have you devalued yeah. life that much because you keep reliving? You know, has yeah. immortality caught up with her? I don't know. This is where my Myra X series comes into play. I yeah. Just wanna, I just want to point out. That right? would have been like, perfect. Yeah, there's, there's so much background. So... I view that as tantalizing untold story. I think I totally hear where you're coming from in the sense of it being, it, it's not rushed, but it's super expedient. It's yeah. super expedient with an end goal in mind. And it's like House of X number two, if I remember right, like is still like an oversized issue. Um, you know, like it's still bigger than your average comic. So it's still fitting as much as possible 
into these books. And I think you're right. There's a lot more story to be told. And I think that's, it's almost Hickman doing, building ideas a little too well, Mm -hmm. where it's like, they're so exciting. People want them answered quickly yeah, or not even quickly, but they want them answered or explained a little more in ways that just can't be done when you're getting all the ideas out. Like you're getting them all out into the open and everyone's expectation that is familiar with the man's work at Marvel should be they're going to get addressed. And the payoff is at a minimum going to be interesting. It might not land. I think it will. I expect it will. But it's going to be interesting. But like right now, that's that's a hard sell. I think it's a cool approach, but it's also a potentially hard sell. I think to your point too, like the building of character and character work has been a criticism of Hickman's, I think specifically like in his superhero work, for a good long time. Um, I think he's actually kind of underrated as a a humorist. Like, oh, yeah. He can write very funny characters, you yeah. know? And I think that goes underrated. Like, he does an issue in Fantastic Four. I think it's FF, actually. And it's like a Johnny and Pete living together, Johnny and Spider-Man living together issue. And it's high comedy. Like, yeah. it's just a straight-up comedy issue. And he's very good at it. And like you said... There are funny moments here sprinkled throughout. Like, there is humor sprinkled throughout, but the challenge is he's not developing characters. No. He's using a lot of shorthand. He's using a lot of, like, well, you know Cyclops, right? And and that's okay, but also, like we said, if the target audience is lapsed readers, actually a lot of them don't really at this point. Like, nowhere, some, like in some cases, they literally don't know, like, Sage and Trinary and Gold Balls? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. um, but then there's also, like, I don't know where Magneto's at now. I don't know where I, Professor X, I thought he was dead, or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That is challenging. I think a lot of, re- like, the best approach is obviously just, like, accept it and see what they're going to act like here and then move forward. I think one of the hardest things with Hickman is when he's, Using shorthand, it can feel like all the characters are the same philosopher king. Yeah, I think to steal a to steal a I think a Ta-Nehisi Coates ism from Black Panther, but it's like they all talk in the same sort of like brilliant um, isms. You yeah. know, like these sayings. It's sort of and, a Joss Whedon problem that Joss Whedon gives his characters yeah. the same sense of humor. Yeah, you know, Hickman just mm-hmm. does that with smarts. Right, but I. I think it's subtle. I don't know. As like, and maybe I'm just giving the benefit for the doubt because I have so much love for the the creator's work in the past. But like, I feel like Cyclops is kind of like smirking with everything he says. Yeah, totally. He's a confident leader and he's kind of smirking. I don't think he sounds the same as Magneto. I think Magneto actually is probably like the most comfortable in this role of Philosopher King because mm-hmm. that's what he's always wanted to be. Yeah. So like that fits Magneto super well. But I think this version of Professor X is very like people find him creepy. People are like something's wrong. He must be possessed or he must he must be evil under that cerebro mask. And in in my head I'm just like, no, I kind of just bet this is just like how Jonathan Hickman wants Charles Xavier to look. He's never written him before. He was dead yeah. when Hickman was doing Illuminati New Avengers stuff. I feel like this is just his version of this guy. Um which isn't to say there's not a bomb drop coming. Sure. With uh oh, also in that cerebral helmet is the consciousness of Cassandra Nova. You heard it here first. But um, you know, I I think there's some, I think the character work got put to the back burner because it's all ideas for the idea of the X Men, yeah. as opposed to telling you like, hey, this is what Cyclops is like when he's alone. 
It's, it's just not that book. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he had a lot to do in those 12 issues, even with the extended ones. And I don't necessarily fault him for the fact that normally in part of the characterization, you have to make at least one of the characters an idiot so that they can either make mistakes or they can learn things. They're the audience surrogate. They don't know what's going on. And he didn't have enough room for that in this book, which I understand. But I will give him credit for having, you know, spectacular character moments when the X-Men have to take the modified Blackbird over to kill the Mother Mold. And, you know, you're watching these characters sacrifice themselves. Mm -hmm. And the especially the scene with Wolverine and Nightcrawler is... I almost put it at the level of his uh, his Doctor Doom payoff in Affinity yeah. Wars that it yeah. is this moment that has been such a long time coming. And it's between these two great friends who die still with unresolved issues, but they make that little connection of, um, you know, Nightcrawler saying that he will be waiting for Logan when he crosses over into the other world is yeah. such a gorgeous moment. So, yeah. I don't think he's completely without characterization. I think that some of it only exists if you've been reading these comics for 30 years, yes. which is another Hickmanism. Which I, obviously, as a longtime fan and as somebody who likes the idea of all this history building to something new, I love. I actually love the shorthands. Like the Wolverine and Nightcrawler example is perfect. Um, even Gene and Scott being connected in those final moments. Like... House of X number four is a controversial issue because at the time everybody's like, he killed all my characters. I don't care anymore. As if they'd never heard of superhero comics before. Right. As if we didn't <laughs> know there was something coming. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, good grief, everybody. But even knowing, okay, probably they're not <laughs> they're not all off the table, given we've seen many of them on the Dawn of X covers in, in solicits and whatnot. Right. Even with them not off the table, like, he sold it. I think he sold the moments. And he did that not by building a relationship between Nightcrawl and Wolverine but by leveraging the relationship that already exists. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of really cool moments like that with him. And he's pulling from, like, surprising places in X-Men canon, like a lot of 90s X-Men that I think, you know, gets um, gets an unfair, unfairly discounted rap. But, like, there's a lot of sinister stuff from the 90s. There's a lot of, like... Exodus is I was on gonna the council. Say, yeah, Exodus. Exodus is gets a lot of play. <laughs> on my reread, I was like, he's in like every other panel. What's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that stuff's super successful. Um, but I also think for for readers who maybe had the feeling of like, I don't, I just don't know the X Men right now, and it's weird. I think that's going to get explored a ton more in Dawn of X. Like, I just think this wasn't the book to do that. This was the book to say, what is Krakoa? What is the situation? What is Myra's deal? And the next wave yeah. is going to be, how does everyone feel? About well, once that? we get people out on teams, once we get them paired up and we give them smaller scale missions, yeah, I think that's that's really going to come together. And I am so excited to see what they're doing with X-Force. I think that... Mm-hmm. Kid Omega and Wolverine and Domino on a team. Like, I've always loved Domino and Wolverine, especially since um, the X-Force Sex and Violence graphic novel, if you've read it. Like, Mm -hmm. that was spectacular. But adding Kid Omega... Yeah, adding that strong a telepath into the team is amazing. And Choir's a good X-Force pick, I think. He's got the attitude for it. 
Yeah, he's got the attitude. He want. He clearly is like, let me do something different yeah. where I can mess stuff up. Like it's a, he's a good fit. I also think that he's not quite ready, which I'm excited to see. Yes, like because he's yes. next to died in the wool killers, like yeah. just the baddest, of the bad. So that's yeah. gonna be and super. He thinks he's he thinks he's that tough. Yeah, he's a little Jesse Jesse Pinkmanish. Yeah, totally. You know, I see that from Breaking Bad, where he's like, he's got the attitude, but then it's like, okay, actually seeing it, he might be a little like, yeah. holy, holy. <laughs> like this is wild, you know. Uh, that's interesting, and I think Excal- Excalibur is going out into. I think they're the ones going out into space. Is that right? No, that's new. So Excalibur is doing some other world. That's uh, right. Britain stuff, Sorry, but with Apocalypse on the team. So, so that's, that's going to be fascinating. That's going to be weird, especially if they go back to the dimension hopping like history of Excalibur. If that's the way that they get mutants that are dead and we can't recover, that's yeah. going to be interesting. Yeah, a little cross time caper would be it would not be um not be remiss here. New mutants are the ones who are the core team is going into space to find Cannonball. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Sam and Bobby, previous uh, Hickman favorites. So I'm I'm tentatively very excited about all of Donovax. You know, like I'm especially the fact that there's a Fallen Angels book, <laughs> which is an insane choice. That's great. <laughs> yeah. For those who might not know, Fallen Angels was an eight issue limited series in the late 80s that featured uh, psychic lobsters and devil dinosaur <laughs> at, at various moments. So it's not going to be that book again, but it's like, why pick that name is is fascinating to me. So, all right. That covers a lot of House of X and Powers of Ten. I want to ask one more question. I think before we just do any wild conjectures and theories and wrap things up. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I guess, would you agree this is a successful reinvention of the X-Men or are you kind of like wait and see? Cause obviously it's still early. Like you said, this might be the prequel. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's successful if only because people are really excited and talking about it, which is yeah. a thing that we have wanted, you know, X-Men fans have wanted for a long time and talking about it, positively yeah as fans yeah or even even if critiquing with enthusiasm yeah of fans as opposed to what are all the problems with this thing yeah right which is which is atypical yeah. in, in media uh it's yeah especially it's atypical now and frankly it's been atypical for the series ever since um you know marvel started devaluing them with like uh AVX and IVX and trying to push them into sort of more of a villainous territory that put a lot of negativity in the fan base. Mm-hmm. So now I'm I'm super happy to see that no one has been telling me that Cyclops was right. Yeah, that's that's right. totally changed since the book came out. So that's good. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be Myros right pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> right. Or uh, <laughs> or whoever she's up against might be Jean or somebody. I don't know. Yeah. So. Along those same lines, I'm curious what you think. What's better, the thrill of the build, the thrill of world building in Hoxpox, or the middle of the run payoff in a series like Immortal Hulk? So this was a question I challenged uh, the CBH you know, Twitter following with. I basically said, I'm excited to have this conversation, this deep dive. I'm nervous to rank House of X versus Powers of X versus Immortal Hulk. And I got pretty much a 50-50 split from people who were like, oh, Immortal Hulk's better, clearly. And then people who were like, no, House of X, Powers of Ten. I'm curious where you fall. Because it's it's you can't rank the series just as comics. They're doing two very different things right now. What do you think is better? The build or the landing? Better in terms of my enjoyment or better for the comic series itself? What do you enjoy more? Let's start there. Okay. 
for me, it's House of X. I am. Yeah. There are so many mysteries. There are so many things left undone. Uh, a number of my characters are back and in a a configuration that I find true or at least interesting for their character. Uh, I think all of that is great, but also that's kind of what happens. You know, everybody gets really excited for the first uh, the first chapter in a book. You know, everybody gets fu- yeah. happy for that one. Uh, I think you know. I still think Immortal Hulk is great, and certainly I got a big emotional payoff from following that character for so long. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that it built towards. But I am way more excited about House of X right now. I have the same feelings and i think like it there's some there is that part of me that is like is this the first issue problem yeah and i'm just succumbing to it where it's like yeah of course the new shiny thing is more exciting but i act so like i do think what l ewing and joe bennett and company are doing in immortal hulk is potentially harder like it's harder to grow a series in issues 18 through 24 than it is the brand new kickoff to to an idea, I think, in just the way comics have been historically, I think that's harder to do, and they're doing a great job of it. Mm-hmm. I think if I'm going very objective and critical, maybe Immortal Hulk is like more effectively paced. There's there's definitely more character work, yeah, obviously in like a series that is now again up to issue number twenty four, and it's not like that's a book without ideas. Like that is a book that is. That is exploring some very interesting things, though. I just, at the end of the day, my number one on the best Marvel comics of 2019 is going to be the House of X Powers of Ten experience. Like, it's 12 oversized issues that I literally had to go to my shop and wait for them to open to get. I could not wait to get these comics, and that <laughs> it, it part of, like there's a mini, there's a mini like, well, I didn't want to be spoiled online part of it. Well, you know what yeah. I mean. My shop doesn't open till noon. I stay <laughs> offline for, <laughs> you know, like for six hours. Um, so, and Immortal Hulk, I just don't, I don't do that. I just don't. You know what I mean? I want to read it every Wednesday that it comes out, but I'm not first thing. Yeah. It's just like if I have a pick, I it's House of X and Powers of Ten, and I I get where people are coming from that like Hulk better. I like that it's even a conversation, frankly. Yeah, totally. Um, that's a good place for for Marvel stories to be. Absolutely. I I love that people are respecting the craft of building and maintaining the mystery in Immortal Hulk. That's, that is so difficult to do. And I respect it tremendously. Um, Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's part for me, I think the first issue, Joy, and I think it's part for me that Hickman has some kind of, some kind of attachment to my brain. You know, in the way that, uh, Mm -hmm. in the way that like certain cells are built to be receptive to something i have some gland in my head that just waits for new jonathan hickman books to come out yeah um but in terms of business right now like if you put a gun to my head and you asked me i don't think house of x is good for for x-men i don't think it pulls in enough people i don't Mm. think that it built a mystery like, I, I have faith in Jonathan Hickman, as I've said. I, I think he's going to get there. But I think that it has built a mystery in such a way and built expectations in such a way, it's going to be really hard to meet. He's a, he's a spectacular writer, and he's done it before. Right. But he has set himself up with 
a, a real hard time of pleasing his fans. So you think you think we're in for an inevitable letdown? I think that there are going to be some letdowns along the way. I think that, yeah. you know, Hickman always ends strong. And I yeah. think that whatever he chooses is the the core conflict or the core mystery. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like, as you said, the amount of stuff that he has brought up about black holes, that's real tricky to bring home. Uh, I don't I don't know how he's going to do that. And, yeah. you know, after that, there's the um, there's the issue that he's got to rely now on the fans that he has built from House of X and Powers of X. He's got to rely on those fans dragging in more people into a really complicated story. So do you, when you say it's not good for X-Men, which I think is a really fascinating take, when you say that, do you mean like it's it's already complicated and it's only going to get more so and that's just going to be hard for people to walk into? Or is is your take more, um, it's probably, it can almost only go down from this hype and that's not good for X-Men? I think that there's going to be, I mean, there's got to be a sag and hype in the middle of this. And we're, I think- we're, There's a backlash that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's going to be a moment and we, we almost hit it with like House of X number four. With the with the like oh the characters are dead I don't care anymore sort of wave, but that was pretty mini. I think there's going to be a point around like X Men Eleven where people are like ah the series isn't doing it like there's kind of be a wave of like I'm kind of tired by this before it builds yeah. back up is my is my expectation. I think that's true, and I think on top of which I'm really concerned. Whoever comes after Hickman, what this is a classic X Men problem. Anytime that. Yeah. You know, they, they get these writers who build up spectacular ideas and they are, um, you know, deeply invested in how these characters work. And then those writers have to hand those over to somebody else. To your point, yeah. with like X-Men number four back in the 90s, there was a huge backlash just by getting Claremont's name off of it. Right. What's going to happen with all these crazy ideas that Hickman has built? Where you know, where does this go in the future? How do people build off of this? And he's touching an enormous well, franchise. He's never leaving. <laughs> the good news is he'll write this forever. Right. <laughs> I've locked the door so from the outside. That. He's staying yeah. in there. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I, I hear that. I think honestly, I think that's what Dawn of X is going to be is going to be addressing in a lot of ways because now we've got technically like one and a half books written by Hickman mm-hmm. of six. Of seven, actually, if you throw in Wolverine. So it's like we've got all these other writers who are going to be trying to match the cadence yeah. and and the ideas of this world. And I don't. There was definitely like there was a part of me that when Marvel announced it, I was like, "That's too many." Yeah, that's too many books. All at I once. wish they do three. Yeah, you know, or I wish they do only. It's like honestly, like the part. There's a part of me that is so worried about them not living up that I'm like just do X-Men by Hickman <laughs> <laughs> which isn't ever what Marvel would do right no, they publish a million books a week Absolutely. so we're gonna see over the course of the next like you know month and a half probably really we should give it till the end of the year certainly you let these books get two or three issues out yeah, yeah. but we're gonna see like can Jerry Dugan can Ben Percy can Teeny Howard can can who are the others that are involved um can Ed Breeson can they get there and as creators, I I could rank them and I could talk about their previous works. None of them have done what we've seen with House of X and Powers of Ten, which is the point, right? Yeah. Like it's like it's like a, t- a, a basketball team with like your superstar. You know, you got LeBron, <laughs> and then you got some supporting role players around him, right? 
but it's like who there can step up to be the like to be an all-star yeah um because that's what that's what the franchise needs same with the same with the artist line same thing pepe Larraz and arby silva like on this book and marty gracia colors like mm. holy cow these books look good I, I i don't know if you're on the same page as me but like i loved i don't know so much about it just i love the experience but like I love looking at these comics. I like the character designs. I like the choices for costumes, yeah. which are kind of like odd in it, like Magneto in the all white. Yes, please. Oh, like, it's so interesting oh. that they've got Magneto in all white and Charles in black. Like, yeah. I am. Yeah. And uh, Moira's comment about uh, Eric being the shade to Charles and that, that yeah. Jungian archetype of he is literally a part of you, just the part that you don't recognize. Mm-hmm. Like, Little things like that, and they did it in costumes, and how expressive some of the characters yeah. are. Just, oh, like, I I love how Mystique was drawn. Just yeah. haughty and tired and sick of this nonsense. She never wanted to be never. in any of the rooms that she was in, and it's such, interesting. It's such a big change from how she was in the past, where she was, like, the big sex symbol, shoulders back. Like, yeah, yeah. such an interesting choice, and so well done, yeah. to your point on artwork. Uh, and yeah, it's a big concern because Hickman in the past, and God love him, he's had trouble with maintaining his creative teams. And he had, before he finished up um, the Infinity War stuff, he had... Secret Wars. Secret Wars, sorry. I keep saying Infinity Wars. You keep Wars. hitting me with Infinity Wars, and yeah. I'm like, John, John. Yeah, sorry. It's a different, different event. I know, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you for the correction. Uh, so he, you know, before he finished up his Secret Wars, he famously had some kind of public meltdowns with people on, wasn't S.H.I.E.L.D., I think it was one of the Avengers books. Oh, really? And he he wound up apologizing it for it, like, during the last issue drops for Secret Wars. And him I saying- didn't, I didn't even know about that. Yeah. yeah, if you go back to his Twitter feed, he has this mea culpa- of being like, look, I was out of my mind, and I was mm-hmm. I was trying to hold an entire universe in my head, but that's no excuse. Yeah. And I'm a little concerned. Thankfully, he's not doing like every book in X Men, though that is a downside too. Well, it's like I I want that, but it's also probably a good thing. That would yeah. probably be overextended. No, you know? that would be too much, and probably too one note. Frankly, well, right, right. So that's the other thing is like I. I actually, I love Teeny Howard's work mm-hmm. at Marvel so far. I don't know if you read the Thanos series she did, but I was like, I'm very protective of Thanos books <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way. I'm like, listen, if it's not Starlin, you better have, you better bring it to the table. And and she did in this six issue series that's like a flashback about Thanos raising Gamora, which honestly, like when I heard it announced, I was mad. Like yeah. I was irrationally mad <laughs> because I'm like, this book's going to suck and it's Marvel cashing in on an end game hype. It's really good. Hmm. It's a really good book. She's a good writer. I'm super pumped for her Excalibur. So it'll be fascinating to see, like, is it Howard who's the one who's like, I bring a different take on these characters, but also it's so welcome yeah. to get away from, like I said, the Philosopher Kings all the time for a minute, Well, that's you know, what, for, for a breath. That's what Excalibur always was in the, yeah. in the series, that it was always this big breath of fresh air. Yeah. Also, I remember Excalibur being really funny. Excalibur was like kind of a comedy book. Um, I mean, on like the Alan Davis covers frequently have like the, the caption bubbles and they're very funny. Uh, a lot of times there's one that I just, I was reading like some nineties Alan Davis when he was writing it too. And one of them's like 
it's all the X-Men fighting Professor X, and it's Jean Grey turning and mugging at the camera like, if this doesn't sell comics, we don't know what will. Like, it's that sort of level of, <laughs> kind of, Howard the of meta. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but, it, yeah, it's fun. So, like, but you got Apocalypse involved. So, it's like, how do you balance... Well, you use him as a straight man with the fun, you know, I mean, yeah, there's sure if you've got a good solid straight man like him or like Colossus or uh, who else? I'm trying to remember. There's another good stalwart kind of I feel like Brian Braddock is is actually like probably the typical straight man in that's Excalibur. True. That's true. He's the one who gets the clown nose put on him on a cover. And it's like that's, you know, that's the goof. Um, but yeah, no, there's there's a ton of potential. All right. Let's get close to wrap it up here. Thanks, everybody, for listening, as always, of course, to these conversations. I have a, a very fun time doing them. Do you have any wild conjecture or theories that you want to spit out there about um, either something that happened in the event or something you think is to come? Uh, for me, I think it's going to be the war to collect all of the Omega-level mutants. Mm. And I don't know. It's going to be interesting because I don't think it's going to be Apocalypse doing it. I think that he's going to have this weird soul-searching arc, uh, sort of like what they've done with Thanos recently. But for who is doing it, I don't know. Maybe they'll pull Roxxon in. Uh, you know, I think that they're going to pull in some weird thing, and on top of which, I totally bet Franklin gets abducted. Okay, okay. I think There's going to be some Franklin stuff. Coming. Yeah, that, I think he's the on. powder keg. I think that's going to set off a weird fight between the other superhuman communities, the mutants, and how they interface with humans. I think that's kind of where it's coming. Uh, besides that, I'm really interested in what's happening with Professor Xavier. I love your idea about his uh, his unabsorbed twin being in there. Yeah, yeah. My original thought was that this was going to be more of a stolen technology, something like the Celestials that he'd gotten off of uh, Apocalypse Without Asking. And that mm -hmm. this was going to mess with uh, his powers in such a way that it would switch from being the astral to the reality. Hmm. And that he would gain some kind of low-level reality-warping powers as a result. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So my my two favorite theories that I've sort of worked through on the fly on, on some of the Crack and Krakoa stuff I've been doing is... My first one is Apocalypse, his missing horseman clearly have been set up his first horseman is set up in the pages of this event it was set up in the marvel comics 1000 even we're gonna need to find the first horseman and when we do there's obviously a big story to be told about making krakoa whole mm -hmm. you know i think the way to do that is with an event that i've already named it's called x-men eternal okay and it's going to bring in celestials it's going to bring in the eternals because lord knows if anyone can make the eternals relevant and good, it's Jonathan Hickman in a giant X-Men event. Yeah. <laughs> and also, my take on this is, who is the one character in the Marvel Universe who ties to Eternals-related things that anyone cares about? It's Apocalypse. Yeah. He's the only one because he has celestial technology, mm -hmm. and he has a long history with the Celestials. Nobody cares about any actual Eternals yet. I'm sorry, Eternals fans. I'm sorry. I'm, excuse me. I'm sorry, Eternal fan. Thank you for listening. But like the Eternals are not big, I think they're there. There's an MCU moving coming. I think they're gonna try. I think this is the book to do it. Like I, I actually think it would be really interesting to bring in godlike characters, mythology. Um, like honestly, like they are not super dissimilar from 
mutants that have been around forever, like Apocalypse, like Exodus. Mm. I think there's an interesting dynamic to play with there. My other theory that I like, like you mentioned, I just think it's a given that Cassandra Nova is going to be a big player. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, because of all the stuff that people have observed about Professor X, he's acting a little strange. He's walking around literally with the Cassandra Nova hat <laughs> when he's talking to Doug in uh, on Krakoa, which is like, seems like a tell. But also just like Hickman's obsessed. Maybe that's a little strong. He loves the Grant Morrison new X-Men. And so much of this work is like a response to the first three issues, mm-hmm. the events of Genosha. Cassandra Nova's responsible for that. And also, we've got this thing where the X-Men are saying, all mutants are welcome. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? Cassandra Nova? Shadow King? Like, what about the mutants who have ruined your life, Charlie? Yeah. You know, or tried at various times. So I'm really curious to see how that's going to play out. I think it's just like, I don't know exactly what the story is to tell there, but I think it's going to matter. My final theory that I'll work out here on the fly that I have not talked about before is the final issue here. We've got these redacted segments of Myra's journal. And I think there have been some interesting redactions over the last like three or four issues. First with the Quiet Council, where it's like, okay, we're redacting the Red King. Why? That should matter. We're redacting all these journal entries. Why? That should matter. I think one of those redactions is going to be the time when Charlie turned into Onslaught. Okay. Because <laughs> again... If we're going to say this 10th life is the Marvel Universe that we know, we have to reconcile the stories that have happened Mm -hmm. in Marvel continuity. So unless we're going to wipe out some of these, Onslaught happened. Yeah. How did it happen? What was Myra's role? Did they try this before and it went bad? Yeah. You know, I think that's an idea where it's like Myra's, the, the big secret almost seemed like a letdown to me. It was cool, but it was almost like we always lose. Yeah. And then I thought about it a little. And it, because it, I think of the reason it felt like a letdown to me was like, we always lose. And then I was like, well, except for this time, because right. this time you've got the new plan. But then it was like, well, what if they've already tried it and lost in this timeline too? Hmm. And they're trying again. And that was Onslaught. That's interesting. So that's my third theory that there maybe is some connective tissue there. I could see that. I also think now that you bring up the Eternals, I could really see a fight, a, a face off between the Eternals with X-Men backing up against the Phalanx, since the Phalanx want to consume mm. all technology. Yeah. And I bet they don't have Celestial or Eternal technology yet. There you go. And that would be interesting. There you go. That'd be a new hull for them. And that's and that's the other piece is like, we have to connect to this future timeline. Mm-hmm. We did not do all this building of black holes and dominions and technarchs. We did not do that building to throw away with House of X and Powers of Ten yeah. because it did not get solved. Yeah. In any capacity. You know, Powers of 10-6 ends the timeline, but it's not a solve for all that stuff. So that stuff's coming back, and I'm, I'm very curious to see how. I also really want to see what they do with Cable, with Strife, with Legion. You all these Teenage people... Cable? Yeah. Well, there's that. Uh, <laughs> then again, they've got Proteus. They could just fix it. But, uh, yeah, I really— Age him up. Age him up, Eva and Proteus. Let's yeah, maybe even take out the techno-organic virus where you're at it. No, we can't do that. He's got a contractual <laughs> obligation to look half metal. Okay, fine. Yeah, interesting interesting question. Could you could you rehusk cable into a better body? Yeah, like could you just build it out of uh the genetic material of Gene and Scott? Just make a new one. That's fascinating. And what happens to to all of these people who do time-based work? You know, that's mm-hmm. going to be real weird. Well, Bishop is a captain. I'm not mistaken 
Um, on, so you got Bishop as a captain. You got Cable. He's definitely going to be bouncing around a couple of these series. He's on the cover of X-Men 1. He's on the cover mm-hmm. of Fallen Angels coming up. So the time travelers are very interesting to me as well. Is that how we explore 100 years in the future, 1,000 years in the future yeah. You know, ideas, but now in the 10th timeline? Or do they become the rebellion against the, the world that Charles is building because they've seen something? Right. So like... Yeah, just I if mean, you don't allow so, precogs and they don't have any people who have the power to go through time right now, yeah, yeah, where do they go? Yeah, and and is that because you're hiding stuff? Yeah. Oh, it's definitely right. because she's hiding something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, All right, I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right, so John, we'll have to do hour five next week or something. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I was going <laughs> to warn you that this would be a, a two week podcast. That's fine. I, I, I can to- <laughs> I could started. totally do a second week of this. That's what's so exciting about it is, is there's so many angles. We didn't even get to like all the questions, but it's it's totally fine. I think we covered it well. Um, John, I had a great time as always. Um, you can find John's writing over on compocurl.com. You can find a lot of my writing over there. I would say if you've listened this far, thanks so much. Yeah, Please thank consider you. Please liking and subscribing on YouTube uh, or on the Best Comics Ever podcast. All this is made possible by support over on patreon.com slash compocurl, which is where we will be announcing our next deep dive for the month of November as well, which I don't think we've actually yet determined. So no. we can we can talk about that in okay. a moment. Um, but yeah, cool. Anything else you want to plug, John? No, not really. Uh, I think it's mostly just this. And yeah, please check out the article on telepathy as a, as a superpower reviewed as it goes deeper into some of the ideas that I brought up. Um, also check out uh, the podcast Cracking Kakoa number six. Uh, since Dave had an interesting conversation with the Submariner, or about the Submariner. You didn't talk to him directly. Uh, but you had that you conversation. Don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's your deep throat there. Um, so check that out since it has some interesting conversations about Charles meddling in, in Submariner's head very early yeah. on, too. Yeah. Who knew Invaders would be the most thoroughly connected uh, right? like Marvel series with, with House of X and Powers of Time <laughs> to date, at least? All right, this has been fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 